What is up? I am Evan Lovett, and welcome to my new podcast, In a Minute with Evan Lovett. This is an Odyssey original brought to you by my company, In a Minute Media, coming to you live from my studio in the heart of my favorite city in the world, Los Angeles, California. Let's get into it. Yo, what is up? This is episode number 20 of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. I remember when I started and I thought getting to 20 would be a huge accomplishment, which it is. But I also know that we're just getting started here. And I thank you so much for tuning in every week from wherever you are to where I am right here in the heart of LA in the I Am Studios. We have a great show today, literally. So let's get into the rundown. We start with something that happened in LA this week. The kids are out of school and summer break is in full swing. For some... That means activities, camp, childcare. But for others, that means idle time, screen time, distractions, staying with cousins, and difficult decisions for the kids and adults. So that got me thinking, is LA really a good place to raise a kid? I dive into some key elements that are unique to Los Angeles, both good and bad. And I'm going to want your opinion and your feedback on this one, so stay tuned. Then I get into, if you're going to do one thing in LA this week, do this. This is one of my favorite day trips or even weekend trips in Los Angeles. We know how sprawling LA is. I mean, we're talking 500 square miles in the county, but this is a special trip to a freaking island. LA's island. I mean, who knew LA has an island, right? And I thought the island was touristy, but I went with my family on a tour with a native and oh my goodness. The depth of trivia and history of this place is outstanding. I can't wait to tell you about it, but I want you to go so you could tell me about your trip. It's legit fun for the entire family. All right, y'all, let's get into it. So something that happened in LA this week, little by little, the kids were getting out of school But I think everybody's walked and everybody's off and school is officially out for summer, which is great news if you're a kid. But what about us parents? I can tell you personally, it's going to be refreshing not to deal with homework or moaning about bedtime. I could probably be more lenient about screen time and snacks. But there are also a few logistical headaches, right? During the school year, my wife and I have a routine. My wife usually takes the son to school. I pick him up. He plays sports. I manage the baseball team and practices. We take turns making dinner. She puts him to bed, does all that. Whatever needs to be done, we make it work. But some of the routine changes literally overnight. We send our son to various camps, and he also plays travel baseball. We shuttle him back and forth to some friends' houses. But all these have different hours, which means my wife and I need to figure out a different routine. But we're the lucky ones because we can make it work. And I know camp is a luxury, Sports and activities cost money, and not every kid is into those specific things. Every kid is different, right? And the fact is, raising a kid is very difficult, but it could be especially difficult here in Los Angeles, especially because of the cost of living. But I wanted to look into a few factors, not just cost of living, multiple things about raising a child in LA and solicit your input into really Is L.A. a great place to raise a kid? For me, always, the first and most important thing is safety. 
I've told this story previously, but it's important because it's indicative of a certain narrative that states that L.A. is not a good place to raise kids, all right? When my son was four, we were walking on our own street. We lived on kind of a main street. And we're walking to get shaved ice right down our block. And one of the properties on that block was never developed and it turned into a homeless encampment. So the first issue, safety, kind of dovetails into just the constant exposure to the homeless, the unhoused, and having to explain that to children. In this case, my child. And I try to be honest with them, right? Mental health drugs. These are tough subjects to breach. And my son was four during this particular incident. So I just tell him those are people that didn't listen to their parents and teachers. And maybe that's not the best strategy, but that's what I went with, especially because it's so prevalent in LA and I don't want to answer the question over and over. So, I mean, first and foremost, what do you tell your kids specifically about that homeless situation? Right. And it is. I kind of feel that that's safety when you're walking by. You you don't really feel great. I definitely even still my son's nine now. I don't want him riding his bike near those kind of areas. Right. So in this case, we're passing this homeless encampment and there was a shopping cart with a sign that said, do not touch exposed hypodermic needles. I am hepatitis C positive. And of course, the kid being a kid and he was four, not able to read yet. He asked what the sign said. And I told him it simply said, do not touch. But again, now I'm lying, right? I don't want to lie to my kid. And granted, this is the proverbial white lie. But this is indicative of potential safety and health concerns. And something I don't think many people want to expose their children to. So I tried to dig into these stats. And you guys know I do some homework and some deep dives and some research but children's safety in itself is very difficult to get precise stats about. I mean, there's all kinds of protective laws and legislation. But I was able to get objective viewpoints about feelings about safety in neighborhoods in Los Angeles compared to the national average. Check this out. Now, percentage of people in the United States that say that they feel safe in the neighborhood is 89%. Los Angeles, it's 81%. In what is deemed inner city Los Angeles, that number's 51%. And again, these are objective feelings. I mean, these are subjective feelings, but objectively, when half of the people don't feel safe in their own neighborhood, that's a pretty big red flag. So let's ask what percentage of people live near a park or playground with children, by the way. Again, nationwide, 89%. In Los Angeles, it's 83%. And now parks and playgrounds, yes, they can be dangerous places, but they're also a place to go with your kid and to have fun and to feel safe. And again, inner city Los Angeles, 76% of people live near a park or playground. What percentage of people have used the park in the last month? Nationwide, 79%. Here's where LA is actually above average, 80%. Inner city Los Angeles, 60%. Now here's a, here's a kicker. Do you feel that your nearby park or playground is safe during the day? Nationwide, 90%. In LA, 
87%, which is higher than I thought. Inner city Los Angeles, 61%. But get this. Do you feel that that nearby park or playground is safe at night? Nationwide, 58%. Okay. I remember when I was a kid, we used to do some unsavory things at the park at night. I mean, older, like teenager, by the way. We used to do some unsavory things. So I get that. And LA as a whole, 41% of people think their park or playground is safe at night. And in inner city Los Angeles, only 21% feel that the park is safe. Now, again, these aren't exactly stats about crimes on children or crimes against children, which, I mean, come on, we, we don't even need to talk about. It's horrible in any context. And I wish I had a deeper reading of, you know, the actual numbers. But I can tell you that people definitely do not feel as safe with their children in Los Angeles that they do elsewhere. So it appears that LA is below average, subjectively at least, and I can't say that I disagree. But what about schools? This is obviously a foundational issue about raising a kid, right? And this is a weird one for me because I sent my son to Glendale Unified for elementary school, but that's not a knock against LAUSD. The school's especially the elementary schools are pretty good in Los Angeles. I'm going to get into these numbers. I do have good numbers on this one, but it's because we are a bilingual family, right? We needed a Spanish immersion school for our son. And the closest one to our house is in Glendale. But I will admit that it's odd that more LA schools, including all the ones near my house do not have an immersion program. I mean, this is Los Angeles. Hello. So that is a little bit indicative of the school district, in my opinion, right? So we don't send our kid to LUSD, which which may or may not be tough. It's just a personal issue. And we have a pretty good reason. But let's get into the overall. Here's the truth. LAUSD has been highly criticized for extremely crowded schools with large class sizes high dropout rates, high expulsion rates, low academic performance, and in many schools, poor maintenance and incompetent administration. My wife just told me a story that she remembered from high school where her textbooks were literally dusty and one had mold on it. And I know this. I remember even when I was in school, and this is a long time ago, but the truth is I remember thinking how old and outdated our textbooks were. But that was a long time ago and we're flashing forward to now and you got to remember LAUSD is huge. It's the second largest school district in the country. There are more than 450,000 students in LAUSD in 780 schools. But as a result, LAUSD's dropout rate as recently as 2010 was 26%. That means one in four kids, 13 years ago, were not finishing high school. But, but, there are signs that the district is showing improvement, both in terms of dropout and graduation rates, okay? There was an ambitious program late 2000s to the 2010s that was intended to ease the overcrowded conditions 
And almost a dozen new high schools opened in the last 15 years. So what did that do to the numbers? Well, the dropout rate dropped to only 19%. So that's an improvement, but it still means one out of almost every five kids is not finishing high school. Now, I am somebody who bangs the drum on education. I know formalized education isn't for everybody, but I really do believe that at least high school, you know, needs to be finished wherever possible. And that, that to me is a big, very large number, especially when you compare it to the national dropout rate, which is 5.3%. So LA almost has four times as high of a dropout rate. That's a, that's tough. Now, the class size, which at one point was pushing 30 kids in the average class, is now down to 21. So that's a big time improvement. Okay. And I remember when I was in school, again, I had 30 plus kids in my classes. I'm sure a lot of you do too. And 21, that's manageable. That's, that's a good number. So progress is being made, but there's still a ways to go. And now LAUSD also has magnet schools, which are designed to be amongst the best campuses in the district. Um, they're super competitive. So many applicants of those 780 schools, 191 of them have magnet programs and that suits 53,000 kids. So a little more than 10% of kids are in magnet schools and magnet schools by and large are good. But again, is it unfair? The access, not everybody can get into a magnet school, right? And something that was after my time, kind of, but I've seen it all over the place. Charter schools have been all the rage recently. Apparently, there's 51 public charter schools with 41,000 kids in LAUSD. And they stack up well. Those charter schools are better than the average schools, both here in LA and across the United States. But I really don't even understand the charter. Maybe somebody can help me out. Send me a DM. Send me some message. I, I know that they tend to be really good or, or improved schools, at least the ones I know of. So let me know how that works. But again, less than, what is that? 8% of the kids are in these charter schools, right? So that's not really all access. But what about the actual stats? Like how do our kids perform in these schools? How are these schools teaching our kids or how are they learning, I should say? And this is weird. Our schools... Begin above average elementary school and then they get worse as the students advance. I'm going to compare the math and reading scores for you on each level, okay? Our elementary school kids, the public schools in the LAUSD, they have an average math proficiency score of 37%. Okay, that sounds low, but the California public elementary school average is 34%. And the national average is also 37%. So we're stacking up. And listen to this. The reading proficiency score of our elementary school kids is 55% versus 45% statewide and 48% nationally. So our elementary schools are pretty good. LAUSD's doing a good job getting these kids going foundationally. And then comes middle school. Our middle schools are about average, okay? The middle schools in LAUSD have a math proficiency of 34%. California's 32%, so we're above California level. And nationally, 
It's 39%, so a little below that. The reading proficiency in middle school is 54% versus 47% statewide and versus 60% nationally. So we're starting to fall behind nationally, but listen, here's where it really gets ugly. High school. And again, I don't know if this even counts the kids who dropped out. Maybe they're dropping out because they're not proficient. Um, but look at these numbers. Public high, public high schools in LAUSD, math proficiency, 29%. California average, 34%. National, 41%. Way behind. Reading proficiency, 55%. That's okay. Versus 56% statewide, 65% nationally. So take that for what it's worth. We're not up to par. We're just not. The schools aren't. And again, I'm not even talking about private schools. I know there are some fantastic elite private schools out there, okay? But that's not for everybody. It's definitely not even for most, for half. I mean, private school is expensive, man. And, you know, if you're fortunate enough to be able to send your kid to a private school, that's great. I do think there are some drawbacks, but educationally, it's definitely an advantage. But we're talking about LAUSD. So ultimately, parents are the most important factor in education otherwise. And then peers, which can be dictated by good parenting, kind of steer them in the right direction. But yeah, that education, if not stacking up. So next up is an area that LA simply cannot compete with. And I know that it's cost of living. It's important. We discussed rent and housing costs in previous episodes, and everything is more expensive in L.A. It's why we live in L.A. Somebody calls it a L.A. tax, and I, I believe it. You want to live here, this land of sunshine and awesomeness, right? But let me drop this one specifically on you. Child care. L.A. is the fourth most expensive city in the U.S. for child care. Behind New York, Boston, and somehow Milwaukee, but... This is per Business Insider, by the way. You want to look this up. Now, child care costs have gone up everywhere. Inflation, pandemic, all that. But they've jumped 41% in LA County since 2019 for households with two adults, a preschool-aged child, and a school-aged child. And the average cost for child care, you can look this up. This, this is not private school is $2,400 a month. And now look, we've had babysitters. My wife and I both work. You need somebody. It's I'm not going to say a nanny, but somebody watching the kids or like I said, camps, sports, whatever your child care is, you're paying for it. Unless you got cousins, grandparents, all that thing, then you're shoveling them around town, spending gas money, and you're still paying for it. And most... Well, many families can't afford that and it pushes parents and the numbers say it's mostly moms out of work because then they got to be the ones to provide the childcare, right? Especially during these summers. And that's what kind of brought this up. And that's a nasty cycle. We have a close family friend who had a divorce. She had a big time job. And during that divorce, it got nasty and she had to look after both the kids and she wanted to make sure they were raised right. So she quit her job and she quit until the youngest was 10 years old so 10 years raising her kid and she is a hero by the way 
But then she wanted to get back in the workforce and that required new resumes, new training, new skills. I mean, things, these things change so fast. Computers, not just social media. I mean, your job is completely different now than it was 10 years ago. So when she wanted to get in the workforce, it took her a year to find another job. So yeah, man, childcare, that's serious. And LA is simply not a great place to raise kids in that regard. But I want to leave this topic on a positive note. In fact, three positive notes about raising kids in LA. <laughs> At least for me. Number one, and this is as cliche as it gets, but it is the damn truth. The weather. Your kids can go outside. They can be in the yard. They can be in the sidewalks, playing with their friends, riding their bikes on the grass, outdoor access, parks, beaches. I mean, dude, you guys know during this this rainy winter that we just, this, this crazy, crazy winter, everybody's cooped up. That's not a good feeling. Everybody gets this cabin fever and kids are going wild and you're going crazy. And LA, you know, except for once every 40 years when we have these storms, the weather is gorgeous and your kids can breathe and they can be outside and explore. So that's number one. Number two, and this kind of goes hand in hand, is fun. I'm serious. We're not just talking about Disneyland, Knott's, Magic Mountain, although those are all awesome, but California Science Center, Natural History Museum, dinosaurs, I'm a dinosaur guy, Discovery Science Center, Travel Town. I took my son to Travel Town so many times. Griffith Park, run around outdoors at the Getty. I mean, there is a lot to get into for a kid in Los Angeles, and that is a huge, huge benefit for the parents, and not all of it costs money. And again, yes, it's because it's outdoors, and it's because of the you know, the great weather and the climate. And yes, a day at Disneyland, a day at Dodger Stadium, expensive. They are. Again, that goes cost of living money, but we have options, probably more options than anywhere on the planet and it's pretty freaking awesome. And that makes it a great place to raise a kid. But most importantly for me, what makes LA a great place to raise a kid and something I talk about and think about a lot is the exposure to cultures. I had a diversity episode. It's the truth, man. Like black, white, Hispanic, Middle Eastern, Asian, everybody lgbtq we have it all in los angeles and i don't care what neighborhood you're in you are exposed to different types of people and different classes of people everywhere especially because we're driving everywhere all the time and that is such a richness of experience that you do not get anywhere outside of los angeles and that exposure really makes our kids stronger, better, more intelligent in different ways because learning about other people and being tolerant to other people, man, that is what this city is all about and raising your kid to accept and embrace all that. And I'm not even talking about the food. You know, I know kids are picky. My, my son likes octopus and he likes sushi and Mexican and all this kind of stuff. That in itself is awesome. So for me, exposure to cultures is a huge, huge positive factor about LA 
that outweighs a lot of the negatives. And look, I really want to hear about you. I, I want to hear from you about raising your kids in LA. Have you ever thought of moving? Is it too unsafe? Is it too expensive? Do you not want to have to explain to your kids every time you drive under a freeway what's really going on over there? Or is it worth it to have them exposed to this rich culture, the fun, the people, the splendors of Los Angeles? And I know I'm proud to raise my boy right here in L.A., even if he does go to school in Glendale. But hit me up. You know I always get back to DMs. So let me know your take on raising kids in L.A. Now, speaking of kids... If you're going to do one thing in LA this week, do this because it is great for kids and adults. Get down to San Pedro or Long Beach, get on the Catalina Flyer or the Catalina Express boat and head down to Catalina, Catalina Island. Again, I'm always tripping. LA has an island. That's so funny to me. Now, make sure you make your reservations at a time because they do fill up, but wow, is it worth it? I'm going to get into the details about how to make reservations, but I want to talk about Catalina. And I admit it, I knew about Catalina. I, I went to Catalina when I was a kid on a field trip. Didn't remember much except that I took a boat and it was an island. But again, thinking that this sprawling metropolis of Los Angeles, the land of cars, has an island, that blows my mind. An island part of Los Angeles. But What's even cooler is some of the trivia and tidbits that make Catalina amazing. And I'm I'm chomping at the bit to tell you guys that tell you guys about these. And the reason it came up is because I was invited by a friend to head head down there. And so I jumped at the opportunity, right? I made a reservation for my wife, my son, and I, and we took the ferry, which in itself is pretty fun because you're out on a boat in the Pacific Ocean. I mean, the boat is cool. It was roomy. It was spacious. There's a bottom deck, top deck. They have drinks. They have snacks. It took maybe an hour. And we even saw dolphins on the way. Already a win, right? And where we went was Avalon, right? There are two places you can like land or dock, I guess. Avalon and two harbors. So once we docked at Avalon, we were off and running. And the first thing I noticed is there's not really many cars and that's because Avalon is the only incorporated city in the lower 48 states. Think about this. That cannot be reached by car. The only city in the mainland United States. I guess it's not the mainland because it's island, but the only city that's part of the lower 48 that cannot be reached by car. And there's a good reason. There's a 20-year waiting list to own a car on Catalina Island. In 2015... Less than 900 cars and trucks were permitted on the entire island. And Catalina's not tiny. I thought it was tiny because I only remember that one main street. But Catalina's 22 miles long and 8 miles wide. This is a pretty big place. So only 900 cars and trucks. And of those, only 484 were permitted for personal use. So it's pretty cool especially as an LA experience that it's not car driven, right? And and of those cars, most of the personally owned cars on the island are, are tiny. They're like smart cars, right? Um, and, and most of the residents who want a personal use vehicle or even a golf cart, they got to be added to the waiting list. And think about that. 
you got a kid turning 16. All right, we're going to get you a car for your 16th birthday. Uh, wait, no, actually, you're not getting it till you're 36. So already we're talking. This is the antithesis of L.A. And this is refreshing, right? It's, it's just cool. So now you're there and you're walking. And that main strip there, I think it's called Crescent, Crescent Avenue. It's cool. It's like a mile long, maybe half a mile long. Shopping, ice cream, great food, ton of bars, teeming with life, people life. But Kellyn is also known for its wildlife, right? And there's foxes all over. There's a lot of foxes on that island, stuff like that. And there's also bison. <laughs> Where are you going to see bison in L.A.? But I'm going to get into those details too. But man, what a way to spend the day. It's legit unlike anywhere else in the city. And so is the history, Okay. There are only 4,000 residents on all of Santa Catalina Island. Most of them do live in Avalon. But there's as many as 15,000 visitors per weekend and more than a million visitors each year. Not just because of Crescent, but because of the depth of what the island is really about. And so I'm going I'm to get into a little bit of the history and then tell you some of these tidbits because it's cool, man. So listen. The human activity on the island begins with the Native Americans. They were called the Pimugna or Pimu, right? And they were there thousands of years, okay? And in the 16th century, the first Europeans arrived. A man named Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo claimed it for the Spanish Empire, 1542. He named it San Salvador after one of his ships. But he didn't stick around and neither did the name. So a half century later, another Spanish explorer, Sebastian Vizcaino, rediscovered the island on the eve of St. Catherine's Day in 1602. So he renamed the island Catalina in the saint's honor. And it's funny because the Spanish conquistadors wanted to build a mission there. But there's no fresh water on the island. And what's really cool is the entire island and the population run with desalination. desalinization. So that in itself is something pretty special because we, we talk about that, especially when the drought was going on. I talk about that. I did a couple episodes about that. But the entire island's water source is based on that. And it's really neat to kind of see how that operates and works and how successful. I mean, a million visitors, the population's not high, but that's a lot of people going in and out of there, right? So the Spanish kind of fiddled around with the island and ownership traded hands a few times. And it never quote-unquote, developed after that point until a man named George Shadow, a real estate speculator from Michigan, purchased the island for $200,000 from a man who was raising sheep and cattle there named Augustus William Timms. And so this man, George Shadow, Chateau, uh, purchased the island, and this was the height of the real estate boom, the L.A., Come west, go west, young man, 1887. And he created the settlement that would become Avalon. He built the town's first hotel, first pier. And early maps actually called the town Shadow. But his sister-in-law, Etta Whitney, came up with the permanent name of Avalon. So Shadow and his sister-in-law, I guess, laid out the streets of Avalon, introduced it as a vacation destination to the general public, right? L.A., baby. He hosted a real estate auction in Avalon in that year, 1887. And he purchased a steamer ship for daily access back and forth to the island. 
1888, this small village kicked off the opening season as a booming little resort town. But as with all booms, real estate went bust. And by 1891, he ended up defaulting on the loan. And the sons of Phineas Banning, of Banning fame, and what an important person in LA history. I'm going to do a separate episode of him. The sons of Phineas Banning bought the island and they established something called the Santa Catalina Island Company, which still exists to this day, to develop as a resort, to develop the island as a resort. And though the Bannings, the Banning family's main focus was in Avalon, they were interested in the rest of the island, developing the rest of the island. They wanted to introduce the parts of the island to the general public. So they paved the first roads into the island's interior. They built hunting lodges, led stagecoach tours, and they made surrounding developed areas around Avalon. And they also built the Catalina Island Golf Course. And I don't usually talk about golf much. I've played a little bit in my day, nothing crazy. But this is significant because this is the oldest golf course west of the Mississippi. And it's still there. When I was hanging out with my friend in Catalina, he took us. I didn't golf, but I was up there on the first tee. And it's, it's beautiful golfing on this elevated mountain, essentially, on the island. It's cool. But the Banning family, too, fell into debt. So they were forced to sell their shares in the Santa Catalina Island Company. And one of the main investors was William Wrigley Jr. Wrigley, that name sound familiar? The chewing gum magnate. Now, preceding his purchase, he traveled to Catalina with his wife, Ada, and his son, Philip, and he fell in love with the island. So in 1919, he bought out nearly every shareholder until he owned the controlling interest in that Santa Catalina Island Company. And Wrigley's really where Catalina started jumping off. Again, this is chewing gum, and I find it funny that chewing gum can make you so wealthy that you could just buy an island like Catalina, right? So... Wrigley wanted to bring publicity to Catalina through events and spectacles, right? Starting in 1921, the Chicago Cubs, the baseball team, also owned by Wrigley. He moved their spring training to Catalina Island. And this is dope. It's no longer a baseball field, but I'm such a huge baseball guy that I had to go to the site of where that spring training facility was. And there's a clubhouse there and there's all these old photos of the Cubs on Catalina. And it's like, it's really cool, right? And they, the players would stay at the Hotel St. Catherine in Descanso Bay. And they played on a, on a ball field built in Avalon Canyon. Now there's just truck. I think it's like a truck storage yard, if I remember correctly. But the Cubs used that island for spring training for 30 years until 1951. I thought that was really cool because spring training, Arizona, Florida. But no, these dudes were in Catalina. So again, just a cool little tr tidbit. And also while Wrigley own the island that's when the bison arrived remember i talked about the bison they used to call them buffalo now they're called bison these are majestic animals i mean thousands of pounds you, you've seen them by they're they're really gorgeous man and they're all over uninhabited parts of the island and if you have access if you're lucky enough to have a friend over there you can get pretty pretty close i have a picture of of some bison from about 20 yards out. And I mean, they are magnificent. But again, think about that. How the heck did bison get to Los Angeles? 
Yes, it's an island, but come on. Does New York have bison? Does Chicago? I mean, LA, another just unique fact. How'd they get there? So if you look it up, you'll see that in 1924, there was a silent film, The Vanishing American, and that's usually given the credit. But the film came out in 1925, and there's no bison, and there's no terrain that resembles Catalina. So journalists for the Catalina Islander did some research, a man named Jim Watson. Turns out there was another movie, and I guess that's where the confusion arose. A movie called The Thundering Herd, also released in 1925, which does feature bison. And that's why the initial dozen or so bison were brought there. And they're still there. And they're a huge part of Catalina's culture and lore. And at one point, there were 600 of these magnificent creatures, but they can't run rampant. And there's a Catalina Island Conservancy that maintains the herd. And through relocation and contraception, there's about 150 on the island. And they appeared happy. The dudes I saw were like eating, wagging their tails. And it's, it's a cool sight, right? So in the 1940s, here's another, another fun fact for you. 42 to 45, Catalina was closed to visitors because it was a military training base. And again, remember, we had just got bombed at Pearl Harbor. This is the Pacific Ocean. This is a very strategic location. And I got to see some old military barracks, some underground like hideouts. It was really, really neat. But amongst the military family members that was stationed at Catalina in that period was a 17-year-old woman named Norma Jean Darty. She lived in Avalon with her U.S. Merchant Marine husband, James Doherty, who was stationed there for training. And if you don't know that name, Norma Jean, formerly Mortensen, but Norma Jean Doherty, well, that's Marilyn Monroe. So think about that. Visitors couldn't go, but Marilyn Monroe was living on Catalina for a while. I thought that was pretty cool. And here's another great one. This is the last one I'm going to leave you with. This one's really cool. This is funny. In September 1972, there's a group called the Brown Berets, a group of Chicano activists that staged an occupation of Catalina Island. They traveled to Catalina, planted a Mexican flag, and claimed the island for all Chicanos. Why? What, what game that right? Were they just crazy? Were they just, ah, oh, we're good? No, no, no. They asserted that the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo between the Mexican sorry, between Mexico and the United States did not specifically mention the Channel Islands of which Catalina Island is part. And that's true. You can look it up. It doesn't mention it. It mentions all these specific locations, but not the Channel Islands. So the group camped above this point where there's a big casino near Avalon. It's a tourist attraction. And they have food and they had supplies and they said it was part of Mexico. And after 24 days, a municipal judge visited the camp and asked him to leave. And they departed peacefully on a tourist boat. Same way they arrived. But it's very, very interesting. Because going back to 1894, there was a commission of the Mexican Society of Ge Geography and Statistics that determined that those islands were never explicitly ceded to California meaning the United States.
So consequently, Mexico had a legitimate claim to these islands. So is Catalina really part of Mexico? I mean, I was going nuts when I saw that. I mean, we're all really part of Mexico when you want to get down to it, truthfully. But Mexican government itself never lodged a diplomatic protest and they never asserted any claims over the island. It was the Brown Berets. And in fact, in, eight, in 1978, Mexico explicitly recognized U.S. sovereignty over the islands of California as part of a treaty between Mexico and the United States. So Catalina is part of the U.S., but that is just an awesome nugget that I really, really enjoyed. So in conclusion, how do you get there? It's fast. It's easy. It's fun. Like I said, it takes one hour. There's high-speed ferries to get you to this paradise, right? Two companies. Look them up. Google Catalina Express, Catalina Flyer. They both offer boat transportation. They both will go from Long Beach or San Pedro to either Avalon or Two Harbors. Two Harbors, by the way, it's on the Isthmus of Catalina. If I remember from elementary school, the Isthmus is like the most narrow part of an island, right? And it's more isolated, more rustic. I did not see Two Harbors, so I can't vouch for it. But my friend, the local, told me it's kind of like a village, if you will, with a population of just under 300 people. And it's it's a haven for boaters and, and scuba divers. But you can go to either place. I recommend Avalon, but I also recommend try to find a guide, try to take a tour, try to go around that island. The boat is about 80 bucks round trip for adults, 65 for kids. And you can also take a helicopter if you want for 350 bucks. But yeah, just take one of the ferries. Catalina. It is incredible for the kids and for the adults. So that is our show. 20 episodes in the books. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of in a minute with Evan. Love it. Don't forget to hit me with that feedback, especially on raising kids in LA. I want to know your thoughts, whether it's cost of living, whether it's safety or whether you love the experience, diversity, the fun. Tell me, give me that feedback and please leave a five-star rating and review. If you have the time, it is so helpful. We're growing every week. We want to keep growing. You guys are all highly appreciated. All right, y'all. It's been a minute.